please give Peter a big warm welcome. Well, I'm very happy to be here. I've never been to Palo Alto before. My bad. Um, but I want to sort of uh, piggyback a little bit on what Kevin said, that um, you know, I was asked to come here and just talk about what I think. You know, and I'm very happy to do that. Um, my family doesn't want to hear what I think, so I get to go to strangers and tell them what I think about things. But um, you know, I'm you know, in, in, a, in a tone of conversation and, and each having our own thoughts and ideas, and that is not only good, but that's very healthy. And so I'm not here to force anybody to think a certain way, um, but I want to tell you what I think, and then we can talk about it, and we'll have time for comments and questions and things like that, because I think these are issues that keep sort of showing up. They're not going anyplace. So I thought maybe we can start with talking about one of these, and this is, um, there we go, uh, divine, the Bible and divine violence, which is what I treat in, um, in that book, The Bible Tells Me So, which uh, came out a couple of years ago, and um, it's an issue that uh, people want to talk about. Actually, in that book, the first chapter, the first substantive chapter, is about violence, God's violence in the Old Testament, and um, you know, it's just something that doesn't go away. People want to talk about it because that's the thing that really sort of gets them the juices flowing. You know, I, um, I don't really belong to a denomination right now. I don't get along with denominations very well. But um, I've been an Episcopal, going steadily to an Episcopal church for about five and a half, six years now. And I've gotten to know the Episcopal community. And anybody here from an Episcopal background... Good, so you won't be insulted when I'm about to say, which is the truth. I love the people. They don't read their Bible. They, don't, they just don't do That's not their thing. That's fine. Okay, whatever. So, you know, I go and, and, and speak at Episcopal churches, and um, I say, okay, take out your Bibles. They look at me like I'm crazy. And I said, well, do you have any Bibles here in the church? And they say, I, I, I thought, do we have some in the closet back there? Because... No, no, we moved. Remember, we cleaned them out last spring. So anyway, I don't care. But what they're doing, this one parish, here's what they're doing. They're reading through the Bible in 90 days, which is, I know that some of you have done that with Danielle, right? And how many days is that? Like five months or something? Or 20 weeks, which is a lot. That's more reasonable. 90 days is just crazy. But they said, you know, we want to get to know the Bible, and they, of course, they start with Genesis, and they move on, and within like three days, I'm getting emails from the rector of the parish saying, hey, can you come talk to us? Like, yeah, what's going on? He goes, people are dying left and right in this Bible. You know, in Genesis, it's just there's a lot of death happening, and God seems to be sort of angry, right? So can you help us work through that? And, you know, I, you know, plenty of people thought about it. This is not a new issue since, you know, before the time of Jesus, people have been thinking about this God and how this God is portrayed in the Bible. So let's, let's talk about that a little bit. Um, three examples that I thought we could look at, um, they all sort of hit different things, but Noah and the flood, right? That's sort of, that's a nice children's story, isn't it? Noah and the flood. No, I don't think so. Um, these sort of over-the-top, what seem to be really like, Lord, calm down. It, you don't have to do all that to the people for doing things. And we'll look at an example of these over-the-top punishments that are just sort of hard to handle. And then the conquest of Canaan, right, which uh, usually, at least with my children when they were young, they would do vacation Bible school, and every three or four years they'd rotate into Joshua with swords and you know, that's you would do with young boys. But, you know, it, it's just as well, instead of calling it the conquest of Canaan, you could call it the extermination of the Canaanites. Because that's really what's sort of happening there in that story. And it's, it's, it, it's these, these stories that are sometimes difficult to sort of get our arms around. Um, okay, first, the flood. And um, this might be a little bit hard to see, but this is from that movie that came out with a guy who played Batman. What's his name again? Um, that's thank you, Christian Bale. Yeah, and um, this is you know these are the floodgates as depicted the springs bursting up from underneath, and just sort of a little side issue here: the the flood story is not about a really bad rainstorm. Ideologically, theologically, in the Old Testament, it's it's much more than that. In in day two of Genesis chapter one, God separates the waters above from the waters below 
by making this arched dome-like structure called the rakia. And, and, and some of us, we know this as the word firmament, right? And what the firmament does, it sort of pushes the waters apart. It separates them. So you have waters above and waters below. And then the next day, day three, the waters below are separated, okay? So you have the waters above and the waters below. What the flood story is about is the waters above and the waters below collapsing in on themselves. What that does is it takes away habitable space, so you're returning, you're returning creation to its original state of chaos, not the habitable space that Yahweh had made it to be. And that's, I like that picture because it shows at least half of it. And if you're reading the book of Genesis in chapter 7, um, it says the, the, the windows of the heavens were opened and let the, uh, let the waters above come crashing down. Okay, so it's, it's really, it's, it's not just it's raining a lot, it's creation is being undone. It's a pretty serious moment. Um, yeah, but see, here's the thing. Uh, you're reading along in the Bible. You start with Genesis like a good person. Might as well start at the beginning, right? Don't start in the middle. You start with Genesis, and you get to chapter 6. I mean, think about this. You get to chapter 6, and God has had it already. And everybody drowns. Right? I mean, that's, that's, that's very early on in our Bible. And, and people who read the Bible, sometimes for the first time, maybe as adults, it's hard to wrap your arms around that to say, what do I do with this? Right? It, it seems like th- there was no other option but drowning everyone. Um, when uh, my family was younger, my, my children are they're grown, they're out of the house, they're 28, 26, and 23. When they were young, we had a plaque, a big wooden engraved plaque was about this big and about this high. We put it over one of the bedroom doors in the hallway. And it it sort of was like this, God's promises never fail. And, you know, the more I thought about it over the years, I thought, that's a good thing, but that's not what the flood story is about. And you have, you know, the, the, the cute animals... And sometimes there's a Noah who looks sort of like Santa Claus, sort of jolly and happy, bringing the little animals two by two onto the ark. But I don't know if this really depicts... This is not a children's story. Do not read this to your children. I forbid you. Don't do it, right? (laughs) They'll turn out like mine. You don't want that, okay? Um, I mean, I think what you'd rather have here is God is so mad, he kills everyone. That's really what the flood story is depicting God is angry and he's had it. And he says, I have to start all over again. So he starts with Noah, Noah's wife, the sons and their wives. And Noah is like Adam. He's, he's, he's re- God is pushing the reset button, wiping everything out and starting with a new Adam. Right. Um, but, you know, it's, it's, it's a difficult story. And, uh, I mean, I don't want to beat a dead horse. We'll, we'll look later at maybe a little bit of how to sort of negotiate a story like this that might help. But let's lay out some of the other issues first, okay? Um, the second one, curses and punishments when Israel disobeys Yahweh. And this is a depiction of, um, of uh, the, the exile, which happened in 586 BCE, the exile from Jerusalem to Babylonian captivity. And I just put that slide up there because that's, for the, for the Israelites, that's the ultimate punishment from God. The ultimate punishment is being tossed out of the land that God had given to you, that God had promised to his people. The ultimate punishment is to lose that land because you don't just lose the land, you lose the temple, you lose the king. You lose everything that makes Israel Israel. The temple is God's presence with his people. It's not just a, a church where you meet, right? It's actually God's presence dwells in that temple. And to lose all that is sort of a big deal, right? So that's, you know, that, that is like the ultimate curse and punishment. But there's one here, one thing here in the book of Deuteronomy, towards the end, you can see here in 28 and 29... This is a list of curses and punishments that Yahweh promises to his people for disobedience. And just just glance at them. I mean, these are the things you encounter when you begin reading the Bible for yourself. Enemies from a distant land will take you captive. 
There'll be fever, drought, and plight. Your corpses will become bird food. Incurable boils, ulcers, scurvy, and itches. Okay, can we stop there? No. Madness, blindness, and confusion. You'll be continually robbed and abused with no help to come. Other men, continually robbed and abused, yeah. Other men will lie with your betrothed women. All right. Livestock will be butchered and stolen from you. Your sons and daughters will be taken from you as you look on. You will eat your own children in afterbirth and withhold food from loved ones. Every malady and affliction not mentioned will also come upon you. In case I left anything out, it's going to be anything else. Now, the question that people ask, and I think rightly ask, is what kind of God is this? At least I know people who have no commitment to any religious faith whatsoever will ask that question. They have every right to ask it. Right? Um, what did I just do there? Did I break something? I broke your computer. There we go. Let me see if I can do this right this time. Yeah. Um, it, this reminds me more of this guy. Do you know who this is? It's from a movie. Ever see V for Vendetta? If you haven't seen it, what's wrong with you? That's a great movie. Anyway, this is like Chancellor Sutler, who's sort of like a big brother thing, controlling society and meeting out these judgments and punishments on people. And it's, it's pretty tricky stuff. Um, okay, so that's, you know, you, you get the point. I, I'm trying not to paint a bleak picture, but I just want to sort of let us sort of see firsthand the way the Bible depicts God, at least in places, right? And that's the question, the question that people of faith, Jews and Christians, have to think about. is like, what, what do I do with this? How do I understand this? Right? Which, which we'll get to in a sec. All right, the third one is the conquest of Canaan, which is a pretty bloody affair. And, um, you know, this is... Um, In the book of Deuteronomy, God gives. um, Move that for a second. In the book of Deuteronomy, God gives the orders, the marching orders to the Israelites as they're about to enter the land of Canaan. And uh, he says basically, here's what you're going to do to any town that you come to that's around the outside of the borders on your way up to Judah, this is in chapter 20, right? Any town that you come to. Um, give them the terms of peace, which means this. Give us all your stuff and we'll enslave you. If they refuse, you go to battle with them, you kill the men, and you keep the women and children, and you keep their stuff anyway. Okay. But when you enter the land of Canaan, the land that I'm giving you, the land of promise, there, what do you do? You don't give them a choice. You kill everything that breathes. And, you know, what's the difference? This is a question people ask, and and I think not without reason, right? Um, What's the difference between that and, you know, pick your genocide from the 20th century? Pick one, anyone. Yeah, you know, how do you defend that? Right. Well, one way to defend it is people say, well, it's God doing it, and God can do what he wants. Okay, that just exacerbates the problem. That doesn't really answer it for us, does it? Like, why does God do this? Right. Um, or, of course, this, right, which needs no explanation. And, you know, maybe, uh, I don't know what you were doing 15 years ago. I can't believe it's 15 years already since this happened. Just... Oh my goodness. Anyway, um, but you know this. When, when this happened, some more conservative-minded Christians, who I know, I under, they're friends of mine, I get it, but some of them, they were saying things like, you see where Islam gets you? A bunch of crazy people flying their planes and killing a bunch of people and just wanting to eradicate our whole civilization. Right? And all it took was for a few atheists who don't like Christians at all to say, okay, hey, Christian, have you ever read your Bible? 
Hey, have you ever read what happens there, what God commands his people to do? Right. So it's, it's a, it's, it, co- it poses a theological problem, doesn't it, right? Whether it's the flood or these sort of what seem to be overbearing punishments or killing a people group completely, annihilating them, and then taking their land because God said it's okay. You see, ah, that's the trick. God said it's okay. Everybody says God it's, says God it's okay with God to do that. That's what everybody says. Every 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 um, genocide is backed by some type of an ideology, right? Whether it's religious or other words, other ways. That's just the way it works, right? Um, okay. So how do we handle all this killing? I want to give some examples of ways that I think are sort of commonly put forth, but I don't think always help, at least not for me. I think there, there's another way, but let's just look at these very briefly. Um, how do we handle this killing? One way is to say, well, God is sovereign, and since God is sovereign, whatever God does is okay, and you can't argue with it, which is, is, is quite common. Um, and maybe, you know, you can chime in later, too, when we talk about this a little bit more, but for me, I just sort of take a step back, and I ask myself, Is this really what I believe God is like? God is sovereign. And if God wants to kill a bunch of people and just wipe them out, he can do that. I guess God can do it. But if God can do it and does do it, it still raises the question, what kind of a God is this that we're talking about here? And how consistent is this God with other things we see in the Bible where it seems to be very different? Um, Another one is... Well, God's ways are mysterious, right? And we don't know what the inner workings of God are, and we can't really criticize because we don't understand, we don't have full knowledge. This is mysterious. I'm very sympathetic to this because I actually do think that God is mysterious. I don't think I have my arms around God and I can sort of figure God out. But here's the problem with that explanation. In those stories in the Old Testament, there is absolutely no mystery. You're told exactly why the people have to be wiped out. Because you might intermarry with them, and they might influence you to false worship. So, like, no evangelism, you know, no bringing over, you know, a fruit basket or something to say, hi, welcome to the neighborhood, nothing like that, right? It's just, they're going to influence you, they're impure, they dirty the land, they make it impure, they dirty it, and they'll influence you in the wrong way. So you have to just get rid of every single one of them, including the cows and, and all the animals. Right? So in other words, it's not mysterious in the Bible. It's explicit. We're told why. Okay? So you can't, you, you can't, I think, just sort of fall back on that and sort of walk away from the problem. The problem's still there. Um, they all deserved it. Like the Can- Why did the Canaanites get singled out? Well, because they were super, super bad sinners. And they all deserved it. Well, I don't know. I think the Christian faith, I think, says that we're all super, super sinners anyway. So what, what did they do that was so different? And some people say, well, they had sex with animals. Other people did that too. It wasn't just the Canaanites. See, the problem with the Canaanites probably wasn't what they did. It's probably where they lived. It's probably the patch of land that the Bible says, that God says that he wanted the Israelites to have. Right. So, I mean, they all deserved it. That's, to me, that's not convincing. Again, we can revisit some of these if you want to later. I have no problem doing that. Um, two more. The fourth one, God's not always like that in the Bible, which is true. See, I, that's definitely true. You have to remember that God's not always like that but he's still sometimes like that. And saying he's sometimes one way, sometimes another way doesn't help us in how we think about God. He's just, okay, he's all over the place. How can we count on God here to act a certain way? It's sort of like a picture of a bully, like a teacher telling the third grader, you know, I know that sixth grade bully keeps beating you up and taking you milk money, but he doesn't always do that. It only happens two or three times a week. That doesn't help. Right? You're still left with this caricature of God that you have to try to understand and, and explain for yourself. Uh, the last one, I think, is getting closer to what we have to think about. It doesn't quite 
cut it for me, at least entirely. But um, it was the olden days. It was way back then. Right? And I have a picture here, which I know is very hard to see. Um, short story here. This is, this is a relief. Right? And it's sort of, it's not, it's not a sculpture, it's not a painting, it's a relief, so it's like a little bit three-dimensional. And this depicts a battle, an actual battle in the ancient world between the Assyrians and the people of a town called Lachish. Right? This won't be on a test, so you have to write this down. But there's a town of Lachish, which is sort of south of Jerusalem, and it depicts the Assyrian victory over the people of Lachish. And it caused a lot of people to freak out. This is what they would go from town to town and basically just, well, like God told the Israelites, give up and surrender to us and be subservient to us or die. Right? And usually that's not much of a choice. People will usually fight to try to hold on to their stuff. Right? So anyway, this is, a, this is a relief. And this is one scene. And I don't know how well you can see this. But you see these guys who look like they're flying or Superman? That's not happening. They're actually on the ground, and they're being tied down with their arms, and their feet are being held, and these guys are Assyrian soldiers. You know what they're doing? They're flaying the skin off them. Yeah. Um, there are other pictures I could have put up with people being impaled. Right? It's pretty gruesome. So you don't want to mess with the Assyrians, first of all. They will, they're, like, they're pretty tough. But the point is that, you see... In the ancient world, everybody was violent. I mean, you know, is that an excuse for God to be violent? No, I don't think it is. But the fact is that in the ancient world, I mean, battles and, and armies and technology for warfare and land grabbing and defending your land against enemies, that's just the way it was, right? This is a tribal context, a tribal warring context. And that has a lot of influence on how people see the world. I'm going to say it has a lot of influence on how people see God, too, which we'll get to in a second. Okay, so I think those don't really help that much, at least in my opinion. But um, let's maybe look at this from another angle, and I, I want to sort of lay out for a couple minutes what I think is going on, and then we'll have plenty of time for some questions and comments. I think it's important for us to understand the ancient writers of the Bible, and I highlight the ancient writers of the Bible, and to try to understand their context a little bit. See, context is huge. Understanding something about maybe when this stuff was written and why it was written might help explain at least something of why it looks the way that it does. Okay? So first, the, the flood... And other stories, okay? Um, we'll look at each of these three and try to look at them from maybe a little bit different angle. The flood story, as many of you probably know, the Israelites weren't the only ones to have a story of a cataclysmic flood. Many, many nations, much older than the Israelites, hundreds and hundreds, even a thousand years and more older than the nation of Israel, had stories of a cataclysmic flood. And the reason for that is because a flood actually happened. Not a global flood, but a local flood that flooded the Mesopotamian area, right? Around 2900 BCE. Around 2900 BCE. And uh, one of those, I mean, there are, there are several, but the one I have here is called, you don't have to know this, obviously, but the Atrahasis Epic. It's, it's one of these Assyrian... Um, uh, stories that, that talks about a flood. Um, one difference, though, for example, uh, I mean, the, the Atrahasis epic goes basically like this. The gods created stuff, and there were like levels of gods. They, they ranked. They had tiers. And um, the lower gods had to do the work of like tilling gardens and things like that. And they said, hey, wait a minute. We're gods. We shouldn't have to do that. You're right. Let's create other beings and we'll make them do it, and that's humanity. And what happened was humanity increased and they multiplied, which is like the language of the Bible, right? You increase and you multiply. And it got to the point, though, where there were so many of them, they were making too much noise, and the gods couldn't get their sleep. 
so they wiped them out. A little bit different than the biblical story, isn't it? Right? The biblical story has a different angle. It talks about how um, you know, uh, people were only sinful all the time. The inclination of their heart was only evil all the time. And God said, I, just, I can't do this. So it's not so much they were making so much noise that God couldn't sleep. It has to do with holiness and righteousness and things like that. So a different reason is given for the flood. But you see, both of these stories and the many others that also have a flood story, they're very similar, at least in this respect. They're trying to explain something that happened. Right? A lot of people died. In 2900 BCE, hundreds of years before the first stories that we at least know, hundreds of years before they came out. More than 1,000 years, even 1,500 years before the Israelites wrote their story. It was a huge deal. Probably a lot of people died. And here's the question that ancient people asked themselves. Why did the gods do this to us? That is an ancient... Actually, it's not just an ancient question. When the tsunamis hit, what, 10 years ago or so, you know, in, in, in New Orleans and all that, and, you know, I'm watching the news, and I'm hearing the same thing, right? I mean, do you remember this? says, we don't know what God is doing here, what, what's up with this, you know, why would God let this happen? And actually, just on the news, not from particularly, you know, religious people, but just like normal sort of religious people, asking the same question, why would God let this happen? It's an old question. There's a major catastrophe, and different peoples will try to answer the question of why did it happen. So we have something like the Atrahasis epic, which gives a certain kind of explanation. And we have the Old Testament, which gives another kind of explanation. Right? They're trying to account for why things happen the way they do. Why did this happen? And the reason they gave had to do because they're trying to say something about the character of God, God's holiness, God's righteousness, and the fact that people are made in God's image, not just kings are made in the image of God, but all people, men and women, are made in the image of God, and they're supposed to reflect God's image in the world around them. That's the explanation they gave. So, I mean, for me, how does this help? It just helps because it's not so much... Well, we, let me put it this way, somewhat purposefully, provocatively. It's not so much that God flooded the earth, but it's that the land flooded, a lot of people died. And what we're seeing here in this story is how the Israelites thought about God, which was frankly very, very different than how other people thought about their gods back then. We're learning something about Israelite theology. Right? Don't knock that. We're learning something about how they thought, how they understood with God, and how they communed with God. Okay. Uh, the curses in Deuteronomy and ancient politics. This is going to sound really boring. Um, I hope not. But uh, it, it's got to do with politics here, folks. All right. What do I mean by that? Here we go. In um, the Assyrian, we come back to the Assyrians again. I keep mentioning these Assyrians. Why do I do that? Why am I stuck on these Assyrians? Well, here's why. Because for the entire, almost the entire period of Israel's monarchy, which began with David around 1000 BCE, right, and lasted several hundred years till the sixth century, for five, six hundred years. Almost the entire time of that monarch was dominated by two superpowers basically beating the daylights out of the Israelites. The first ones were the Assyrians, the second ones were the Babylonians. And I, I, I'm telling you, I think that's very, very important to know when you read some of these stories in Samuel and Kings and Chronicles and other places. It's very important to understand that because that's the threat. That's what they're fighting against. The Assyrians were responsible for carrying the northern half of the nation of Israel, the northern tribes, into captivity in 722 B.C. And then they weren't done yet. They were going to come through and get the south. That's where that picture of Lachish that I had up before, that's in the south. That's by Jerusalem, right? They're taking over the region, and the Judahites are freaking out. 
and I don't blame them. Do you see what they do to those people in Lachish? We don't want them to do that to us, right? It's a frightening proposition. What the Assyrians did is they would go, uh, repeating a little bit what I just said before, the Assyrians would go to these towns and, and basically say, here's the treaty for peace. I am your king. My name is whatever the king's name is at the time. You're going to be subject to me. If you obey me, things are going to go great. If you disobey me, things are going to... Let's not even talk about where things are going to go if you disobey me. Right? I'm great. You're not. I'm stronger than you. You're weaker. I'm the suzerain. I'm, I'm the sovereign king. You're the vassals. You're down here. Right? This is part of Assyrian culture. And they threatened the people of Judah. Now, Deuteronomy, how does this all fit in with what we just talked about? In Deuteronomy, um, scholars for a long time have remarked how similar the book of Deuteronomy looks to these Assyrian treaties. They look similar. They have a similar content, a similar um, cadence and feel to them. Right? Think about something like, you know, the Ten Commandments, which is in Deuteronomy. Right? Um, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Therefore, you shall have no other gods before me. This is who I am. This is why I'm great. This is why I'm worthy of your allegiance. Now I'm going to give you the commands to follow. And then you have two copies of the law. Right? That's interesting. Why are there, there are two copies of the Ten Commandments? Well, in Assyrian culture, you had two copies. One went to the suzerain, one went to the vassals. You each have a contract. You sign it, there you go. Deuteronomy looks like these Assyrian vassal contracts, complete with a list of what's going to happen to you if you don't obey. So here is one way, and I'm just throwing this out to you. I actually think this makes the most sense. Here's one way of understanding the book of Deuteronomy. It's another suzerain-vassal treaty, but not between the Assyrians and the Judahites, but between Yahweh the king and his people, which is a political statement on the part of the Judahites living at that time in the 7th century, in the 600s. This is when this is happening. It's a political statement. Hey, people, we have our king that we follow. We don't follow the king of Assyria. We're not going to be afraid of him. We're going to have our allegiance to Yahweh. And so you have this contract, if you will, that's drawn up, the book of, what we call the book of Deuteronomy, which um, captures what it means to be in allegiance to Yahweh and not allegiance to somebody else. Go ahead, yeah. Um, yeah, no, I'm, I was deciding whether or not to get to that, but since you raised it, and you know, I had a feeling somebody was going to ask this, I, I, so go ahead, ask your question. Um, yes, that's a, that's a very, very big question. The book of Deuteronomy, probably, as we see it, as we have it, is probably a 7th century document. And there are reasons for saying that that get really boring and scholarly too much for a Sunday afternoon. Um, but it's a document that seems to be produced in the heat of that moment, and there's some historical reasons for sort of saying that. Um, doesn't mean it doesn't have like antecedents and traditions before that, right? Um, yeah, I boy, I don't want eyes to glaze over too quickly here. We've got a little time left to, before that happens. So, um, but we let, we can talk about that and. The Q&A, too, if you want to. Um, the last one is the conquest of Canaan. Here's another one. Um, the conquest of Canaan and tribal culture. Um, King Mesha and the Moabites. Who are the Moabites? The Moabites are a smallish nation right outside of the borders of Israel. The Ammonites, the Moabites, and the Edomites. If you've read your Old Testament, you sort of maybe remember some of those names. And the Moabites, there is a king by the name of King Mesha, who's actually mentioned in the Bible too. He's mentioned in 2 Kings chapter 3. Interesting story there. Um, anyway, King Mesha, he ruled like in you know, the 800s, roughly mid-800s. And 
the, the, his land was overrun by Israelites. Israelites were actually ruling the land of Moab. And we have this, this monument that was written around his, not written by him because kings don't do that. They have scribes do it for them. But, you know, he's this monument that tells the story of King Mesha and how great he was and how he got rid of the Israelites from his territory. And he says things like, yeah, the Israelites have been running us you know, ragged for so long, but that's because our god, Chemosh, was angry with us. See, the Israelites have their god, Yahweh. The Moabites have their god, Chemosh. Chemosh was mad at us. And so um, what we had to do is we have to appease Chemosh. We have to get him happy again. And then what happened was, was we eradicated the Israelites. We wiped them out of our land. And the language that you use in the Mesha inscription, this, this thing that was written by his people, the language used there is this complete annihilation and eradication of the Israelites, wiping them off, right? The same language that the Bible uses to describe what happens to the Canaanites. Now, here's the thing. The Israelites weren't eradicated, but that's how they talked. Right? That's, that's how you talk about these things in an ancient tribal context. You don't you, you maybe exaggerate or you sort of paint this dire picture one way or the other, right? So the language here of the conquest of Canaan is a language, and, and we know this, of, there's other evidence too from other nations that use similar language when they talk about warfare. See, if you lose a battle in the ancient world, you do one of two things. You say, okay, the reason we lost isn't because our God is weaker than theirs. It's not because we're weaker. It's because there's some sin among us, and that has to be taken care of, and then we'll win. Or if they lost, they'll say, we, boy, did we win. See, if you win, you say, we wiped them off the face of the earth, we destroyed them, we killed them, we eradicated them, they'll never be seen from again, their memory will be forgotten from all children hereafter. That's how you talk about a victory. A loss, you say, and we slaughtered them, and we took our spoils, and we went back home. You don't admit defeat, right? So if you win something, if a battle's important, there are ways of describing that battle. There are almost rules you have to adhere to. So here's a possibility. And again, I'm just, I'm just throwing this out because um, give us something to talk about. It, see, it might not be that the Israelites actually engaged in these battles. It might not be the case. Archaeologically speaking, there is no conquest of Canaan. There, there's, there's no evidence for what the Bible depicts. And I remember one of my Jewish professors um, in graduate school uh, I remember him telling us, he said, when he first heard that, he said, Whew. well, I'm glad that didn't happen because I don't have to explain why God would do something like that, right? But then the question is, why is it in the Bible? Because <coughs> that's how the stories are told. So does the story of eliminating and destroying the Canaanites, does this tell us something about God? Or does it tell us something about how people in a tribal culture understood God? Or something in the middle? See, at the very least, there's something to talk about there, right? There's something to engage. There's an issue there to be talked about. Okay. Let's, um, let's get all these up here. We'll just end with this. What time do we have here? Oh, good. We have some time. Okay. Just give a couple minutes, and then we'll sort of open it up here for questions and all that kind of stuff. Um, some thoughts as we move forward. These are just things that I think are helpful to keep in mind in my opinion, right? And I can do what I want here because I'm up here with the mic and I'll just say what I feel like saying. Okay. Um, I think we have to remember a couple things. One, that these stories are... We have to remember how old the Bible is. And I think we sometimes forget that. We think, okay, word of God, therefore there's no distance between myself and when these things were written. On one level, I agree. On another level, I disagree. We have to sort of be careful with that. Um, you know, the time of David about 1,000 BCE, for example, right? We are as far removed from the time of David backwards as we're removed from the year 5,000 forwards. 
Think about that. It's a different time. It's a different place. It's a different culture. There is a gap in understanding. We have assumptions about the world that we live in that ancient people didn't share. They had ways of thinking about reality that's all over the place in the Bible. Right? That doesn't make the Bible garbage. That doesn't make the Bible stupid. It doesn't make the Bible you know, irrelevant, but it does make it ancient, which means we have to do some work sometimes for trying to think through some of these things. It's not easy. Um, second, and this is, I put this in quotes because this is something a seminary professor said <clears throat> of mine once said. He said, God lets his children tell the story. In other words, the Bible is told from the point of view of God's people. Sort of like, you know, a second grader, um, sort of show and tell day in school, and they're going to tell the teacher, um, this is what my mom does all day. And they'll get some things right. They'll say, you know, well, mom cooks. Or maybe mom goes to work and she gets dressed up nice and then she comes home and she plays with me and then I go to bed. Right. Does that tell the whole story of what the mother does all day? Probably not, but it does from that child's point of view. right? Or maybe, maybe a better example is um, uh, boys in a playground especially like sixth grade, fifth grade, seventh grade, maybe around that time, where kids brag about their dad and they say things about their dad. Well, my dad's the best. Well, my dad picked up the back of my car. Well, my dad, you know, and, and, and the thing is that you would tell a story because you love your dad and you want everyone else to know that your dad is the best, right? So you tell the story of your father from that point of view according to the rules of the playground. There are certain ways of telling that story that you have to tell it a certain way to get the point across, right? So, for example, what I, you know, as a child, I might talk about my father in a certain way. As I got older, as I matured, I began remembering other things my father did. What's your dad like? Well, he would wear an apron and do the dishes. Okay, just warning, you do not say that on the playground when you're 12 years old. Okay. Um, when I was sick, my, my dad would, he actually did this, catch my throw up in a napkin. <laughs> dad, get a bucket. Anyway, but it didn't matter. You know, it just, it was, he was there doing that. Or, you know, my dad worked really, really hard all day. And he always came to my Little League games wearing his smelly machinist's clothing. And you know, the other dads, they didn't come, but my dad came, right? See, you tell the story from the point of view of a child. My dad can lift up a car. He's a marksman. You know, my dad worked for the secret. Whatever it is, whatever you got to say to sort of make it, let those people know that your deep love commitment to your dad is serious and your dad's the best. But as you get older, the story matures, the story changes, right? I think what we have in, in, in much of the Bible is God letting his children tell the story from a certain perspective and point of view. And that perspective and point of view is the rules of the playground, which is second and first millennium tribalistic cultures. And there are ways you talk about the gods, there are ways you talk about your kings, there are ways you talk about your culture there that is just the way it is. Um, third, we're not the first people to notice this issue of violence in the Bible. It's not like no one's seen it before and all of a sudden here we are. Oh my goodness, this is a problem. I don't know what to do. People have been struggling with this since before Christianity. And in the church, by the time you get to this, as at least the third century, even before, you had biblical interpreters saying things like, yeah, that couldn't have happened because God's not like that. Right. See, it's, it, this is not a new problem. I just, if anything, just to help us think through this, we're not the first people to notice it. People have been reading the Bible really carefully for a very long time. Okay. Um, fourth, and this is sort of a summary statement, I think the Bible gives us a snapshot of genuine faith in God in that time and place. In other words, when I read about things like you know, the Canaanite extermination, 
what I've come to, the, the conclusion I've come to, and again, you don't have to come to this, the conclusion that I've come to is that I think what we're seeing here is how the ancient Israelites genuinely understood and believed in their God and communed with their God. This is the language that they used. And that's a genuine snapshot of their faith. It may not be telling us, this is what God is always like. See, don't forget, we got to get to the New Testament at some point. Not that the New Testament makes all these little problems go away. It doesn't. It creates some others. But I can't imagine Jesus saying to his people, his disciples, saying, let's get the Romans out of our land. Let's kill them. Let's take over. Let's get our land back. Right? Jesus said the opposite. Pray for those who persecute you. You know, the sun and the rain, they're on the good and, the, and, and everybody, not just you, right? Maybe God actually has something in store for these people, the Gentiles, not just the Jews, right? So in other words, we have, we have the Jesus factor to deal with that makes it sort of a bigger issue for us. And one thing that defines, if anything defines Christians, it's this. How we think of God starts with Jesus and then goes out elsewhere. So in other words, we read the story of the Canaanite massacre through the lens of the gospel. That's what Christians do. That, that, that's, that doesn't make all the problems go away, but it's a different perspective. So the, it gives us a genuine uh, snapshot of faith at that time, but maybe not the final word. Maybe not the final clarification of what God is like. Okay. All right, the last one. Um, trusting in the Bible. I'll make this very brief. Um, I teach college students, Christian college at Eastern University, which is outside of Philadelphia. Great kids. Um, and, you know, we talk about stuff like this, and the question invariably comes up, okay, but how can I trust the Bible now? And they're very eager. They're not, like, shy about it. They say, what, what do we do? How do we trust the Bible? Great question. But I just, this is what Jesus would do. I throw a question back at their question. I don't answer it. Um, I'm not sure if trusting the Bible is really the right way to put this. Because what the Christian faith is centered on, and we'll talk about this in, in the next session, is trusting God. And trusting God and trusting the Bible are not the same thing. So here's what I want to say. Trust God. Specifically, what God has done in Christ. This is where our focus is of our trust. Well, what about the Bible? How does the Bible fit in? Well, what the Bible does is, for Christians, the Bible is this long narrative about ultimately what God has done in Christ for the world. The Bible bears witness to the acts of God. But here's the tricky part. This is the part, this is where we always get into discussions, right? The Bible bears witness to what God has done but it does so in ancient ways. It does, it, it does so always and forever from the point of view of these people who wrote it. At least that's how I see it. I don't expect an Old Testament writer to have a perspective, let's say, a John or a Matthew or a Paul. Different, time, different things, like Jesus got in the way there in the middle someplace. Right? It makes a difference in how you look at it. Right? So it's... Trusting God and what God has done. How does the Bible, Bible work? The Bible works as showing us in these ancient writings something very genuine about what God has done in Christ. But we get to have the fun of trying, and I do think it's fun, it's enjoyable to me, of trying to understand what God is doing. How do we understand these ancient texts? How do we bring them into our world? Right? Especially with things like 9-11 and whatnot. All right, I think let's stop. It's a little before four, and I'm going to let you figure yeah, yeah. out what we're going to do here. Sure. Um, I, I actually, can I take, ask the first question? You might I might fall asleep. Question? I get to sit down. This the Q&A awesome. time, uh, just for those of you who came in a little bit after the introduction, I just want to uh, make sure that we also reiterate that a lot of um, what we're doing here is not trying to acquire... Um, a whole new perspective and, and now come to a whole new certainty on what Peter is now saying, but to engage in dialogue and question. And mm. I can sense and feel that even some of these things, some of this, these ideas are going to be brand new. I mean, we're talking to some people who are like, yeah, this is totally it. And then other people are probably going to like, wait, wait, stop, mm. wait, wait a second. You know, like the, 
Yeah, John. So um, anyway, um, I, I want to ask my first question, but then please, we're going to open it up uh, to you, and please feel free, and this is a safe place to ask those questions, to disagree, to wrestle, and argue. So my first question is, is actually um, kind of like a, along that line when you were talking about, okay, so now we have this book that it looks very much like these ancient writings, comparing and contrasting them. And so what they're doing is they're utilizing that language and telling it in their own particular way. Mm -hmm. We see this Bible, or many of us see this as kind of uh, a book of inspiration or redemption. And my Mm -hmm. question for you is, um, would you agree or how would you explain or how would you um, respond to, okay, that's almost irrelevant, the the kind of the correspondent of the flood stories with those floods. Because what this story is telling us, what this biblical story is telling us, and the reason why these stories have been passed down for thousands of years is because it's actually telling a beautifully redemptive story, and maybe it's using the language of mm-hmm. that particular time. Because this is a very meaningful story. All of these stories are very meaningful to many of us, um, and I think sometimes we hear scholars talk about this, and it feels like mm-hmm. a, a deconstruction, mm-hmm. but is there, is there also something beautiful, inspiring even in retelling flood stories. So what, what would be your response? Or well, I mean, response? I think there is something beautiful and inspiring retelling the flood stories of the Canaanite massacre or whatever, um, but it's not always easy to see on the surface. Right. And I think knowing, and I don't mean like going into a school or something, I just mean get a decent study Bible that has some notes on the bottom, has little call-out boxes that talk about these things because everybody talks about it. Knowing something about the context might help us understand something of the motivation for why a biblical writer would write what he does. In other words, knowing something generally about the context, not everything, I mean like three minutes worth of reading, that's what I'm talking about, just something generally about the context might help us understand something of the theology, which is what we're getting to, the theology of the writer. What is the writer trying to get across, right? And um, it's a story about God and God's people. And I think that's at least a good place to start then to talk about what, what is the value here of reading this story for us. But you see, that's a big question, yeah. right? I, I can't hear the three things that you'll always know now, and, and it's not going to be a problem for you. It's, it is a matter of being serious about looking into the Bible and reading it and trying to understand it. That's, that's the task of... Every Christian that's ever been alive who can read. Not all Christians can read, but you know, that's, that's our obligation is to try to dig into these stories and try to understand them and to see what is this telling us about God. And that's why knowing something of the ancient world might help with that. Yeah. Yeah. Who's got a question? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's kind of this yeah. eternal from God thing, so right. you don't have to think of it as coming from real humans. Right. Um, yeah, I, see, that's, that's one of these issues that's big and important, and it has to come up. Um, I, th- I think I would like to disabuse everyone on earth of this notion, which won't happen, um, of thinking that, okay, a text that's inspired by God means the human element is essentially nil. I just don't think, uh, that, that's a difficult assumption to make at the outset. And the reason why I find that difficult, I, I know you're not saying that, but the, the reason why I find that difficult is from reading the Bible, right? When, when you read things like, you know, Chronicles and Kings has two very different histories of Israel. All right, do you believe they're both inspired? Yes. But yet they're both told very much from the perspective of individuals living at different times, probably hundreds of years apart. So however we're going to think about inspiration, we should think of it as somehow this God thing, but also this people thing, right? And, and um, I mean, some of you have heard this before, you can go to sleep now, but um, you know, if I can get on my hobby horse here for a second... I think the Bible, it's healthy to think of the Bible similarly to how we think about Jesus. Is Jesus divine or human? 
somebody should be shooting me right now for putting it that way, right? Yeah, <laughs> the mystery of the incarnation, Jesus, the God-man. How, explain it, I can't. I'm not even going to go there and explain the incarnation of Christ and all that. But see, that's the way the Christian God, and I'm going to say the Jewish God too, seems to move, is like by being a part of the creation. And the one doesn't work with the other. And I think the Bible, think about the Bible the same way. It's from God, but yet the writings themselves are clearly 100% a part of the culture in which they were written. Just like Jesus, right? Jesus is the Son of God and absolutely 100% a first century Jew. Not European, not Canadian, right? Not Californian. A first century Jew. Not just humanity in a general sense, but humanity in a particular sense. In this time and place. And there are implications of that. Well, it's going to be really hard to recognize God when he does that. Yeah, and most people pretty much Mm -hmm. didn't recognize what they were looking at. Right? Welcome to Christianity. The paradox of the incarnation. Jesus, God, man. Bible, inspired by God. Okay, 100% inspired by God, yet 100% reflecting human thoughts and intentions and all that kind of stuff, right? So, um, now that doesn't, again, okay, oh, now I understand it all. I think that's more the starting place to even talk about that, right? And to me, it's an exciting place. It actually makes sense to me, because I don't have to keep making excuses for biblical writers for why they would say stuff like they say. Why do they say it? Because they're ancient people. Well, God would never say that. Don't ever talk about what God would do and what God wouldn't do. If God wants to be comfortable in human context, God will be comfortable in human context. If God is going to allow himself to be described in ways that make sense in a particular point in time, then God's going to go right ahead and do that. It feels like you're... Um, I was thinking th- it, there, there seems to be these two poles of reading the Bible mm-hmm. uh, and engaging with all this theology, including Jesus and Christianity. The one pole is everything is inspired, divine, perfect, mm-hmm. essentially. And the other, other pole is because it's human or it has archaeology or roots, it's skeptical and or um, just merely a human document, right? right? You have mm-hmm. these two poles, mm-hmm. and it feels like what you're writing about, which I think many of us are trying to gra- grasp at, is that there's a kind of a third middle way. Mm-hmm. Is that a fair and accurate? How, yeah, I, how would you? It's, it's a third middle way. It's, it's a way of respecting both. But there's a line that I, um, I think in every book I've ever written, I've quoted this guy. Who knew? An early 20th century Dutch theologian by the name of Herman Bovink. Google him if you want to. Right? He, 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 described, he described how God acts this way. Is that basically God willingly enters into what is um, messy and out of control right and just he enters into humanity into that which is ignoble that's his word the opposite of noble right the divine enters into what is ignoble and i'm paraphrasing he says that is how you see the glory of god i want you to think about this okay you've got just spatially the divine and the human god enters down right and here he is. And, and a lot of Christians think this way. They say, okay, what's divine about the Bible? Well, let's separate the human part out and the divine part, and then we'll see what's really divine about the Bible. Christianity doesn't work that way. You only see the glory of God through that fusion, whatever word we want to use to call it. You see the glory of God through the ignobility. Does that make sense? I hope it doesn't make complete sense because it's very, very <laughs> profound, and I've had to think about it, and I still think about it. Right? Well, that's what part two is about, right? The yeah. Of certainty, being certain of how that exactly. Works yeah, we, out. we're not certain about that, but it's 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 a wonderful way of thinking about it. That the ignobility is the only means through which you see the glory of God. There is no shortcut. That's beautiful. There's no shortcut, and this, I mean, a way of putting that is is, is Easter weekend, right? The glory of God. Easter Sunday is only seen through the ignobility of the cross. Yeah. Somebody, does somebody else have a question? Yeah. <coughs> yeah. So, uh, can you talk no. Next. No. Okay. okay. <laughs> it sounds complicated. Go ahead. <laughs> uh, John 1. Yes. Yeah. We assume that when we talk about Jesus, and you said that's the focal point of this, the 
Yeah, I mean, very briefly, I mean, that, that's a good point. Um, when I talk about the Word of God, capital W, I'm talking about Jesus. When I'm talking about the Word of God, lowercase w, I'm talking about the Bible. Because I want to, I mean, this makes sense. I want to put Jesus here and the Bible here. I don't want to put the Bible here and Jesus there. I mean, I know churches, they sing hymns about the Bible. I have a big problem with that. Nothing against the Bible. I love the Bible. I study it all the time. But we have to get our priorities right. So I think that helps with the analogy a little bit, right, between... Bible is like Jesus. Jesus is like Bible. It's, it, it's, helpful. It, it's, it's a helpful analogy for us to think about. We take both very seriously. There's a mysterious element to both, too. We can't grasp it. Yeah. But we dare not absolutize one side of that and render the other side unimportant, yeah. which is what Christians that I know, Christians that I know tend to do about Jesus, and they tend to do that about the Bible. Right? When I hear things like Jesus, Jesus walking around Palestine was omniscient and knew everything. I mean, there's a whole history of Christian theology by really smart people who say that's basically heresy. Jesus was a human being. He didn't know everything. He even says he didn't know everything, right? So you can't, like the, the humanity is, of Jesus isn't just like makeup. <laughs> the, the humanity means something, Right? Limited like us in every way, but without sin. Right? That's the difference. Right? And, and that's, we have to remember those two things. I think it's very important. Ivan, you had a question. Uh, we'll take one more from Jerry. So the calling to me, to feel like calling comes from God, and that's just really whatever it is. Yeah. Um, that's a, that's a good question. I think, you know, the... Repeat the yeah, question. Go, repeat. Yeah. Um, we have all the violence in the Old Testament, and we think of God as love now, but we still have all this violence. So where did the idea of the violence being bad or evil, where did that come from? All right. I mean, part of it, I think, for at least the Christian story, is that it does begin with Jesus and his teachings. That's part of it. Now, why does it still hold on? Well, because we're not really good at it. <laughs> you know, I mean, this has been this, the, the, the tragic story of the history of the Christian church for not always being the nicest people in terms of how you treat others, right? Um, I would say that, um, you know, we have ISIS today, but pretty much everybody in the world is saying those guys are nuts. I'm not sure if they would have said that in 800 B.C., you know what I mean? It's just, I, that's, that is the way you acted. So this, you know, what Martin Luther King Jr. talks about, like the moral arc of the universe is towards justice or whatever. I think there's a truth to that. I think, I think that our, the world has been affected in a positive way, even though there are heinous and horrible and terrible things that happen all the time. There's some, jeez, uh, there's so many significant implications, I think, of that movement. Um, Steven Pinker, many of you know, his writing, um, The Better Angels of Our Nature, has yeah. kind of documented how the world has become less and less violent um, over time. And so we're reading a book, essentially, that was written during, essentially, a more violent time. And that has implications for how, you know, that's, well, I'm just repeating exactly what you said. Right, right, right. Okay, Jerry, you had your hand up. I think that's a very key word. It's, it does represent an ideal, like this is the ideal situation. The ideal didn't happen because there are Canaanites all over the place. Right after the Canaanite extermination, they're still there. 
And then you read about why they're still there. All sorts of reasons are given. But yeah, exactly right. And um, so even within the Bible, did it happen? Well, it clearly didn't happen the way you see in Deuteronomy chapter 20. It's much more complicated than that, right? And then you throw archaeology in, which we don't have time to talk about. And it's like there's, there's a different story being told, from, at least from an archaeological point of view, that might even temper some of that stuff a little bit more. So it's, it's, to, me, to me, it's fascinating, not upsetting, but I'm weird. I do this for a living. So. Okay. Uh, last question. Um, Peter will be here, obviously, during the break for more questions. Oh, sorry. Nick, he's left it. Okay, Yanni, you had a question. Uh, just one, one question. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, here, here's the thing, I, I definitely hear you. Um, I'm not always sure that, like, taking something literally is the highest kind of reading we can do. Sometimes taking things symbolically is actually the writers, I mean, I read the Adam and Eve story that way. Intentionally by the writers, it's meant to be taken metaphorically. Not just something we do as modern people because we hit, have evolution or whatever. You, you just um, dropped a bomb in the room. I'm sorry. Yeah, it's just, what I do. I dropping bombs, you know, boom, boom. That's what I do. Um, <laughs> but see, just just something to think about. Okay, Ananias and Sapphira. First of all, it doesn't say God did anything, which is interesting. Like what happened to them? Secondly, here's a way that people have understood those stories. The first few chapters of Acts, everything's happening in and around Jerusalem. This is a continuation of, let's say. Old Testament retributional activity on the part of God. When Saul's conversion takes place, from that point on, there's a different feel entirely in terms of what God is doing in the world. Um, that may not help, but I'm saying there, there, there are ways of looking at that story differently. And um, it's, the thing is that I, I, I love the Old Testament. And I don't think Old Testament bad, New Testament good. I don't think that way at all. But the opening chapters of Acts have more of an Old Testament tone and feel to them because of the Jewish parameters in Jerusalem. And then when you get to the Gentile thing, and again, this is, remember, this is Luke telling the story of the early church, right? This is what he wants to get across. And then you sort of have this, it's, it's a different God at work almost, it seems, reading the book of Acts. Right? And again, I don't mean that to be a cheap, quick answer to it, but it's like, your, your question can bring up 10 more questions that we'd have to sort of filter into this to sort of have a different kind of discussion about it. 